0: All right, if you'll take your Bible, we're going to start in Acts chapter 1, and uh, for those of you, we got a lot of new families, new church uh, attenders and members, just give you a brief um, kind of grasp on what the uh, book of Acts is about. And a co-laborer with the Apostle Paul, and uh, as you read the book of Acts, the, it opens, as it were, think about it like a stage, and the curtain is drawn, and it starts in Jerusalem uh, with only Jewish actors, and by the end of the book, uh, it's on the global stage with nearly no Jewish actors, and the gospel is just going forth uh, into all the world, but it's unique because as the account of Acts opens up, um, uh, it's referenced almost in third person. It's talking about those people, people. But by the time the book of Acts closes, we end up with this word, we, that we went into these cities. And that's because Luke was a part of that story. One of the things Luke is known for in both of the books he wrote, he wrote the gospel of Luke and he wrote the account of Acts, is that Luke was not only a brilliant doctor, he was a brilliant man and a brilliant investigator. And that's actually one of my favorite credits uh, to Luke is that he went through and he sought to know the story of the gospel. And so he interviewed eyewitnesses. And from his eyewitness investigation, he writes what we would know as one of the synoptic Gospels. Uh, there are four Gospels. Three of them are considered synoptic or uh, in synonym or in close relation. They're they're very, very similar. And so Luke's investigative report matches all of the other guys who were uh, present or John Mark who heard it, uh, perhaps from Peter. And Luke's Gospel uh, accounts for that. The only non-synoptic Gospel is actually the Gospel of John. And uh, we'll see some of his writings tonight and how that kind of, it doesn't necessarily, it harmonizes Peter perfectly, there's nothing contradictory, but John takes a very different approach to the ministry of Jesus, and you'll see one of those at least tonight. And so Luke investigates, and he writes his gospel, but he then, from his first book, writes right into his second book, and we find that in Acts chapter 1, verse number 1. He says, the former treaties have I made, so he says, hey, I wrote the gospel of Luke, as we would know it. He said, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And so again, Luke writes this investigative report of the gospel, but he also writes an investigative report of the first century of Christianity, and that is known as the Acts of the Apostles. And as I mentioned, when it starts, Luke is not present. All of that is investigative, but then it's written first person uh, toward the end of that. We won't necessarily get there. What we're after this morning, or this evening rather, is noting what Jesus tells the Apostles after his resurrection that they needed, and you might be well aware of that, but let's look in verse number two of Acts chapter one. He says, until the day in which he, Jesus, was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So this is almost written with the end of the book of Acts in mind. He says, hey, before he, when he left, he was going to give us this Holy Spirit who was going to give us these, these books and give us these instructions and commands to the apostles. Verse number three to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so this is a reference through Luke's investigation that Jesus, after his resurrection and before his ascension, now, if you don't know what that is, I assume you know what the resurrection is. Christ died, was buried and rose again. That's the gospel. But after 40 days, he ministered for 40 days here on earth to his brother James and to many different people that we've seen and and brethren of 500. And and during that 40 days, Days he ministered and he showed him of things to come. He showed himself alive, speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Then he ascended to the Father. You're going to see that in a second. Verse number four. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. But notice, but wait for the promise of the Father which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water. Here's what you heard of me. John baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And this is not the first time that Jesus has discussed with the disciples that he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. In fact, we're gonna jump over uh, in a moment to John and we're gonna see Christ in great detail in John's gospel goes over who this spirit would be and what his function would be to the believer and what his function would be in the world. And that's where we're gonna spend the lion's share of our study But I really want to present a a thought provoking question to you in just a minute. But let's keep reading verse 6. When therefore we, uh, when, uh, forgive me, uh, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that. The Holy Ghost is come upon you. And so as many times, and you've seen this in the ministry of Jesus, and we've seen this in our own studies over the years, that the the disciples keep wanting to make it about the kingdom. Like, when are you going to be in charge? When do we get to be in charge with you? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're we're not talking about the same thing right now. We're not talking about being in charge. I'm telling you to wait in Jerusalem because that promise is coming. They're like, yeah, yeah, the promise. But what about the kingdom? He says, no, it's not for you to know that. You're going to receive power, Uh, verse number 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses. Witness is someone who just tells someone what they saw. You know, if you ever get called to the witness stand, you're not supposed to make up a story. You're just supposed to simply declare what you all saw to be true. He says, ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up in a, uh, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And so again, if it's new to you, uh, after Jesus resurrection, 40 days of ministry, he ascends to the Father, and it's a really unique story. The angels are like, "Hey, what are y'all doing here? Keep get out there and and uh, you know, get ready to share the gospel, but don't leave Jerusalem." So, I want to kind of, I want us to kind of recognize something. Right now, at the, the close of Acts chapter one, the resurrection has already happened. And the resurrection power cannot be overstated. These men were emboldened by the resurrection. Think about it. Uh, they're going to stand before uh, uh, um, uh, the Pharisees and Caiaphas in just a few chapters from now uh, after the Holy Ghost comes upon them. And these men are not afraid of them. They get beaten and they get, they get told, you're not allowed to speak in his name. And they're, they're not worried about it because you couldn't even keep our Jesus dead. You couldn't keep our king dead. I'm not afraid of what you can do to me. And really the resurrection emboldened these people. They, they seem to be chomping at the bit. Christ, you can throw over every kingdom. Are you going to do it right now? And they think they're ready. But from what Jesus has told us, they're not. They're not ready to go yet. Don't leave Jerusalem. Go back to Jerusalem, and I want you to stay there in Jerusalem. Hold on and wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit, because when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then comes his power. So they were told not to leave because they did not have what they needed, and that's crucial. Let's look at verse number 1 of chapter 2 and just kind of check out how Pentecost happens. It says in verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, it's here now, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. We don't have time to go into all of that, but the fire of the temple, that temple presence is now splintered and present upon all people uh, as God begins to indwell his believers. But verse number four, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with t- other tongues as the, Holy S- Ghost, or the Holy S- as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here in Acts chapter number two, they finally receive what they need. They need the Holy Spirit. They need the enabling power of that Spirit. And it's from this moment, and the reason we went back and, and kind of laid this groundwork, it's from this moment that everything we've heard the last week began to unfold. We heard about the exploits of Paul and we heard about, uh, you know, the dead people being raised and people being healed and the gospel breaking down barriers and the gates of hell not prevailing and cities turned upside down and Paul standing before kings and the school of Tyrannus and the, the all of Asia hearing and churches being planted and those churches planting other churches, churches even outpacing Paul to get to the cities Paul would arrive at. We spent the last week watching the unfolding of what power enabled because they had what they needed. So this question has been asked, and I want to ask it again myself. So if they could do it with the same spirit we possess, why can we not, or why have we not rather, accomplished the same thing? If we have the same spirit, and we heard actually during our conference we, uh, a pretty rock-solid case that we actually seem to have a leg up on Paul and the other apostles. We have the completion of the New Testament. We have the technological advances. So why is our generation and most generations before us failing to accomplish these same things? Now, you might say, and I don't know why you would, but you might say, well, I'm not the Apostle Paul. And to that, I would say that's fair. You're not, nor am I. But at the same time, so much of what we heard and read in Scripture having been done was done by not the Apostle Paul. It was done by local churches just like ours. The churches in the Lycus Valley, even the church of Laodicea, it started seemingly through the churches in Colossae, through a man named Epaphras, not the Apostle Paul. The Thessalonians are the Christians who were credited as having sounded out the gospel to all of Macedonia and all of Achaia. The church in Thessalonica is not the Apostle Paul. Apollos, not Paul. And yet he did amazing things in Corinth that Paul himself couldn't even do. Aquila and Priscilla, tent makers, also not the Apostle Paul. So, can I just say, don't use Paul's apostleship to discredit the work and the power and enabling that the Holy Spirit gives, because we have the same Spirit they needed and had. So, let me ask you, why then do we lack the power? And here's the, the phrase I really just want to go after, and we'll pray in just a minute. The problem is not that we do not have what we need, because we do. The problem is we do not need what we have, okay? I don't mean to just say that like a cool bumper sticker. I want you to think about it. The problem is not that we don't have what Paul had. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the New Testament, right? We have the power that comes that they were promised at Pentecost, or rather promised through Christ, and it was fulfilled at Pentecost. They have the same thing we have. The problem is we live lives that do not necessitate what we have. We have built lives in such a way as Christians, 21st century, and I'm not even going to say Americans, just 21st century Christians. We have built lives that very seldom even require faith, much less actual power. You see, Paul had power because he... Had to have power. In fact, so much of that first century Christianity lived in such a reckless abandon to their own selves that if God himself didn't show up, nothing was going to happen. And yet you and I, we live in a way where we hedge nearly all of our bets. If we're just being honest, and I'm guilty of the same, we don't need God to provide for our needs because we have credit cards. Should we ever run out of money before we run out of months, we just put it on the credit card. We have backup plans to our backup plans to our contingency plans. So we live lives that don't really even require faith, much less the actual power of the Holy Spirit. The scariest and most uncomfortable dreams many in the room possess are dreams that lost people can accomplish. To be honest with you, we don't need the power of God to be wealthy. We can do that on our own. We don't need the power of God to survive or to be healthy or to build a business. And I'm not saying those things are necessarily bad. I'm simply saying we operate in such a reduced capacity that it doesn't necessitate any power like their lives needed. We build lives that don't need it. No intervention, no faith needed. Whereas the men and women of Scripture lived with this just hat out in the water God, you're going to have to show up or this isn't going to happen. In fact, in so many instances, their very survival necessitated that God would move a mountain in their behalf. Uh, in Acts chapter number 3, I alluded to it already. Peter and John go up uh, empowered to preach the gospel up and they go straightway, the Bible says, straightly to the temple where they've been forbidden and they begin to preach. They get, they get arrested, they get beaten, 5,000 people get saved. They're, they're told not to speak the name, and they say, we can't but speak the things we've seen and heard. We're going to do it anyway. They lived a life that necessitated faith and power. And the scariest thing we might end up doing this week is, I don't know, think about your schedule this week. Paul was mobbed and stoned in a city he preached the gospel. He got back up and went inside to go do it again. And we're afraid to talk in the break room because someone might not appreciate it. Paul, at the end of his third missionary journey, and this is a great illustration of this truth of needing power and just needing God to move, at the end of his third missionary journey, he is on his way to Jerusalem. And he stops by in Ephesus. And the elders of Ephesus are pleading with Paul. Uh, Luke himself and Timothy seem to be pleading with Paul. And Paul says, what mean you to break my heart? I'm ready to go. Agabus comes and he binds his hands and he says, the person whose girdle this is will go bound down in Jerusalem. Against all logical reason, Paul goes to the place that necessitated God's presence and power. They needed the Holy Spirit. And can we just be honest? Can we we really say right now with what's in front of you this week, and I'm I'm just asking, I'm not accusing, can you and I really say this next week, what's on our schedule, unless God shows up, it's not going to get done. Are we living a life that necessitates power? which is one of the reasons the idea of journeys and, man, reaching Kern County and all these things are so exciting because it's such a step of faith and it's such a step that says, hey, I, I can't even manage this. I can't, I can't organize this. This has got to be something that God himself does. And so let me ask you, what is on your schedule this week, this month, this year that requires the presence of the Holy Spirit? Are you going to do anything next Sunday that if God doesn't show up, Man, it's going to flop. I was thinking about, I don't, I don't want to start picking on people, but I was thinking about Brother Sammy. Brother Sammy found out, you know, the Escobars had their baby. and Brother Sammy's up. I can almost promise you, Brother Sammy, was this morning telling Jesus, I need you now. I need your power. What I'm about to do is supposed to be eternally significant. If your presence is not with me, then I do not want to do this. The problem is so many of us live in a way that that, that experience never happens. The scariest thing we got to do is go to work or go to school. And I'm not saying we shouldn't go to work or go to school. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm saying our dreams and our visions and our goals might be a little too low to actually necessitate the Holy Spirit's power and presence. Let me ask our Sunday school teachers. You stood behind a pulpit today, and I love our Sunday school teachers. I'm thankful for each of you. But did you know you needed the power of God to do what you were going to do? Our teachers coming up on Wednesday night? Because you can certainly think, well, I got it covered. I've taught for a long time. I can make it through a Sunday pretty smoothly. And so long as no kids kill themselves and, you know, so long as we make it through the hour, let's call it a success. But was it anointed by the power of God? Because we can live in a way, we do some things that should have the power of God, but sometimes we make it to where it's not needed because we just kind of got it covered. Think about it in our music. For those of us who serve, I'm so grateful for Mr. Sino stepping in and playing in all services. And what a blessing. And Brother Hunter leading. And uh, Brother Ronnie in the back room leading there. And Are we, what, you know, one of the most dangerous things to be is gifted. One of the scariest things I've ever had said to me was said to me by, by some guy. He said, you know, he, said, he didn't know, really know me. He had heard me preach. He said, you have the gift of preaching. And I thought, that's scary. Because that means, and I've heard preachers say this. That means, hey, I don't even really need to study. I can, I can jump behind that pulpit and just, I got a yeah. gift. You got a gift of singing. I don't need to, God doesn't, God doesn't need to anoint that. I can get up and I can do that. And, and one of the scariest places to be is gifted. One of the scariest places to be is to be good at something that should necessitate the anointing of God. And I've talked to missionaries, man. They were charismatic and they were good, but man, there was some brokenness going on inside of them, but everything was sailing, sailing all smooth. One of the scariest places to be is gifted. Uh, tonight we'll have our, our Lord's Supper. We've got two of our four deacons present, um, for, and we have more men who've served as deacons. you remember the first time you ever served the Lord's Supper? I remember the first time I did. It's terrifying. Lord, this is this is the remembrance of your body and your blood, and I don't I don't want to I don't want to be not ready for this. But you do it long enough, and if you're not intentional, you need God's power anymore. I just got to fill up cups. You know, and these guys were here. I'm certainly not picking on on you guys. I just know that we all fall into this. I've preached behind this pulpit for nine years now. I mean, I've done it however many times that is, 52 times, three or four, sometimes more. What a dangerous place to be. But I'm convinced that God desires for all of us to live in the deep end of Christianity that necessitates his presence. Because we have what we need But oftentimes we do not need what we possess. We do not need the Holy Spirit to step in. We can cover our class. We can write a sermon. We can articulate truth. We can tell a funny story. We can sing a song. We can fill a Sunday school hour. We can help the, you know, we can make sure the kids survive and give them one truth. And we don't need the anointing of God anymore. And so we can just walk our way through it. But I believe that is not what God desires for our church. I believe God desires bigger dreams for our church and for the Christians in this church. I believe God desires to go out and reach the world, our county, our community, our country, and our world. I believe that God is desiring for a church to be willing to charge the gates of hell before the gates of hell even begin to fall. And listen, if we are faithful in little, God will give us dominion over much. I'm certain of that. But it all starts with this person of the Holy Spirit. And this evening, what I desire to do is teach us What are the functions of the Holy Spirit in our life? Jesus said he would send us this spirit. He told us, he promised us, then he did. And now as a saved believer in Jesus Christ, I have the Holy Spirit and so do you. So I have what I need. I need to need what I have. But what is it that I have is what we want to spend the rest of our service trying to accomplish. And for that, what the function of the Spirit is... We need look no further than the conversation, the final conversation Jesus has with his disciples in the upper room found in John 14. But let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on service, which is, again, the reason we pray this is not just to fill a spot, but it's to genuinely, for me at least, to be able to beseech the Lord because what I'm about to do requires the Holy Spirit's anointing. I don't want to just get up here and rely on gifting or even study. You should study as a preacher, right? Study to show thyself approved unto God, right? You ought to study. But at the same time, it's the working of the Holy Spirit that we all need. And so let's ask him for that. Father, would you guide tonight? Would you allow your Holy Spirit to to teach us all things, our desire, um, through our study? I pray, God, that you'd help each and every one of us to recognize the kind of life that we live and whether or not it even necessitates your power. Father, I pray that we would live in such a way and put ourselves in such a position that necessitates your presence. Lord, if we're going to talk to these five people on the envelope, we need your power to do that. Lord, and so we'll, we'll walk circumspectly. We'll walk in holiness. We'll desire, we'll beseech, we'll ask. And Lord, I think in the future here, probably next Sunday night, we'll look at how do we get the power of God or how do we operate in that power? But I pray God tonight that we would simply remember that we have a responsibility toward that power that's been gifted us by the Holy Spirit to use it, to wield it. But tonight, we're just gonna look academically at the scripture and what you said your spirit is supposed to do in and for each of the believers tonight. So God, guide us, we pray. I pray that your spirit would operate through this message and that you would allow us to hear some truth that will change our world and uh, change our worldview. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Now, go to John chapter number 4. I told you John's gospel is considered a non-synoptic gospel. Uh, It's considered one of the four that don't necessarily align with the other three. Now, I didn't say it didn't harmonize. It absolutely harmonizes. But John will tell us stories no other gospel account does. John will include details that no other gospel account includes. Um, and John's timeline and John's use of of uh, chapters, as it were, and I know that he didn't write chapters, but John's use of, of the weight of how much he wrote is extremely different. In fact, this might be one of the biggest differences of John's gospel. When you think about the last week of Jesus' life, um, most gospel accounts give three, maybe five chapters on a generous side. John actually spends nearly half of his word count from the final week of Jesus his ascension. Again, most authors, most of the Gospels are going to include two, three, maybe five chapters to cover from the time Jesus enters Jerusalem for his final week and his ascension. They'll only spend a handful of time. John spends about 45% of his entire book from the last week of Jesus' life to the ascension. He will give us a, a, a view into the conversation in the upper room that no other gospel account gives us. In fact, in chapter number 12, Jesus enters Jerusalem. In chapter number 3, the very beginning of it, or thir- 13, I'm sorry. In chapter 13, Christ is already in the upper room. Chapters 13 through 18, you can just look at it real quick. Look at it. If you have the words of Christ in red, between John chapter 13 and John chapter 18, what you might notice is nearly all of it is red. Nearly all of it. What you're seeing in John chapter 13, John chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, that's a lot of chapters, John is discussing or he's recording for us the conversation Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room. That is a huge portion of uh, the book of John. And he tells us and shows us this conversation in the upper room. A major, if not the major theme of this conversation was focused by Christ on the coming work of the Holy Spirit. And it's in these teachings between these chapters that we're going to take a moment and discuss the 11 functions of the Holy Spirit in the life of the disciples. And so, like I said, if you don't have notepaper, that's fine. If you have a leaf in the side of the Bible or some space, you can write these down as we get to the references. We're going to start in John chapter 14, and we're going to pick up in verse number 19. And uh, we're going to try to read as much text as we can. Uh, There'll be some times where I'll paraphrase four or five chapters, but you're again welcome to read them yourselves. Um, But for sake of time, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to Look at where he is speaking and teaching about this coming Holy Spirit. Mind you, in the upper room, Christ has not yet died. He's not yet been buried. He's not yet uh, risen, and he's certainly not yet ascended. Pentecost is a ways off from the writings of John chapter 14, but he's teaching them about the promise when he leaves what the Holy Spirit will be. So look at verse number 19. He says, yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me because I live... Ye ye shall live also. He says, hey, fellas, right here and now I'm here, but I won't be for long. I'm getting ready to leave. Verse number 20. At that day, ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He says, hey, when you see me leave, you'll know without a doubt that I'm in the Father and he's in me. And how would they even know that? Well, they're going to watch him ascend to the Father. They're going to see his resurrected body. They're going to have the opportunity to put their hands uh, in the holes uh, of this resurrected Christ. And so he says, by that day, you'll know without a doubt who I am. You'll, You'll be sure of it. Verse number 21, he that hath my commandment and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And this is going to be a big theme through the rest of these verses. He says, uh, and he that loveth me shall be loved of the Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now, we know what the word manifest means. It means to display. Now, there's a bit of a conflict here. Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I'm going to manifest myself to you. I'm going to display myself to you. And him and Judas begin this conversation in verse 22, 23, and 24 about love and how Christ will be manifest in his believers. Uh, But rather, uh, Judas asked, how are you going to be manifest to your believers? And that's a reasonable question. Look at verse number 25. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. Verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So we're going to find 11 functions as we read through this upper room conversation of the Holy Spirit. And the first three are found right here in this verse. The first thing we find is the name that, that Jesus gives him. He gives him this title of comforter. So if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible, I'd write next to 26. Number one, he's a comforter. The Holy Spirit is meant to be the one who comes alongside the believer. And that is so relieving to me as a pastor. As a pastor, hey, I want to be there for you in your suffering. I'm going to try to pray with you before your surgeries, but there is no way I am sufficient to comfort you in every need that you have. Nor was I ever called to be sufficient to comfort you in every need that you have. Uh, In fact, Jesus is going to tell us it's better for you that I go away because he can comfort you in every single situation ever present in the lives of the believers. But we come to this idea idea of, of comforter or the Greek word paraclete, which you've heard. It just means one who comes alongside. When Barnabas is called the son of consolation, he's called the son of Pericles. Uh, He is the son of consolation. He's just a guy that came alongside Paul and said, hey, I'm here with you for your journeys. And the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside the believer to walk with us in a constant presence uh, as a believer. And if we would utilize him as our comforter, think about it like this. I I, I don't know. I I doubt it was meant to be this way. But you think about little kids. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but. Some kids, I know I won't tell you who they are. I'm not talking about my kids, but maybe some kids have have a blanket and it comforts them, right? I think that there's a parallel there. I think that as as a Christian, we have this Holy Spirit presence inside of us that will comfort and soothe and bring us this peace that passes understanding. And I would say if we as Christians would utilize that more, we wouldn't need to call our gossip friend as much. Well, we wouldn't need to have a cry fest over every single burden with our, our best friend or our girlfriends. And, and we, you know, we need to get together and talk about all my burdens so you can help me lift my burdens. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you that was intended to be the one who comes alongside and comforts you in all of those things. So let me just say, if you're having a bad day, try him first. If you've got a burden, try him first. If you've got something that's too heavy... Go to the comforter first. Again, are you weary? Are you heavy hearted? Tell it to Jesus. But there in verse number 26, we find more than one function. First, he's our comforter. It says in verse 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, or in this next part, he shall teach you all things. So here in the beginning of Jesus' introduction to this Holy Spirit, he says, listen, I know you don't understand all this, but this one that's coming, he's going to teach you all things. He's going to guide you into all truth. And that's actually going to be found later on in uh, John 16, 13. We'll get to that verse in a little bit. Would you go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, though? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 12, Paul adds some amazing commentary on this idea. The second function of the Holy Spirit is he's going to teach you. He's going to guide you into truth. And Paul gives us some amazing insight to how that works in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse number 12, it says this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So, listen, you and I have been delivered a bunch of promises and truth by God. How in the world are we supposed to know the Bible? Well, the Holy Spirit, we didn't receive the spirit of the world, we received the spirit of God, who's going to guide us into knowing all things that were freely given to us. Look at verse 13. Which things also we speak, Paul's saying, hey, the apostles, we're teaching these things. Not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Now listen, mind you, Paul's a couple, maybe decades removed from the uh, day of Pentecost, and there's already the doctrine of the Holy Spirit already kind of going through the church, and they have a pretty good understanding of it. But at the time in the upper room, they have very little grasp on it. After Pentecost, they've got some grasp on it, but by the writing of 1 Corinthians, they've got a pretty solid grasp on it. And look at what he says which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teach, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The Holy Ghost is the one teaching us all things. But look at verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. He says, hey, lost people can read this book and the best they come up with is what I would call History Channel Christianity. You ever watch a History Channel, like Christian documentary? They're like, and John the Baptist was actually, they call it crazy stuff. You know, Jesus was a marauder. And like, it just, how did you get that out of this? You know why? Because these are spiritual things, and to a dead person, a living book makes no sense. But the Spirit of God is given to you and I, so that when you and I crack open the book before we make our commute to the office, we can read, and man, he says, hey, that one's for you. Uh, you ever, I, don't, I, I personally had never, but prior to being saved, did you ever try to read the Bible? I mean, you're a dead soul trying to read a living yeah. book. But now as a saved person with the Holy Spirit, he is given to guide you into all truth. So he is the one that illuminates truth to you and I. When you read your Bible, he's the one that says that's what that means. When you're listening to preaching, he's the one that says, hey, that one's for you. He's also the one that when you're listening to preaching says, yep, that's not true. You're listening to a wrong preacher or you hear somebody say something in a conversation and the Holy Spirit's like, "Mm." now listen to that. That's the Holy Spirit bearing witness inside of you, teaching you all things. He's the one while you're watching the news if you're in the habit of doing such that tells you "Ah, that's not true. That's hogwash. You ought not follow that spirit. Again, Christians ought to try the spirit, whether they be of God, and not just believe every TBN preacher or every news anchor on their televisions. Christians have this amazing ability to discern right and wrong, to exercise that ability in discerning what is true and what is not true. Uh, uh, and one more time in verse 26, let's go back there. John chapter 14, verse 26. This, we'll pick up that third one. We said there were three in this verse. At the very end of John chapter 14, verse 26, it says, Of the Holy Spirit, that He will bring all things to remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, I don't know if I have a favorite on this list, but I find this one to be awesome. As a Christian, here's what the Holy Spirit does the Holy Spirit reminds you of the things Jesus said. You ever been in a conversation, and then all of a sudden, this Bible verse you barely even knew you remember pops out? You ever been discouraged and all of a sudden you remember the words of Christ that you may not you may have heard it in a sermon a hundred years ago uh, and you were filing your nails the whole time and, and somehow the Holy Spirit was able to bring to recollection the words of Jesus Christ. You ever been speaking to somebody and witnessing to them, and man, they bring up an objection, and then all of a sudden this verse, bam! I'm not talking about like spontaneously creating scripture. I'm talking about recalling a Bible verse that you actually did know. Okay, so don't come up with like Third Opinions chapter four. I'm talking about real Bible. The Holy Spirit brings up while you're soul winning or sowing seeds or just talking to the saints, and man, God brings a verse of encouragement. And I fielded a phone call late last night to a brother not in our church, and man, I said, Lord, would you give me a verse on courage? I began to pray about it, and man, here's a verse the Holy Spirit's responsibility in the life of a Christian is to recall in your mind the words of Jesus. When I'm struggling, he reminds me of truth. When I'm backsliding, he reminds me of truth. When I'm angry, he reminds me of that verse in James. Which, man, you know what I'm talking about? The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. I'm like, take that one out. Because I'm pretty sure I could do it. I could make it happen. Nope, Jesus reminds me of that. When I want to give my opinion just to give my opinion, then the Holy Spirit's going to try to restrain me and offer me some meekness and remind me of the words of Christ. So the Holy Spirit, we found this all in verse 26. Number one, he comforts. Number two, he teaches. Number three, he reminds. Let's keep reading in John chapter 14, verse 27. It says, peace I leave with you. Christ is getting ready to leave, but he's going to give us something, and he calls it peace. My peace I give unto you, not not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The Holy Spirit is given to give us peace. Christ was leaving, but he was going to leave behind his Holy Spirit. And this peace is a birthright to a Christian. If you're a born-again believer, the natural byproduct of having the Holy Spirit inside of you, you know I'm going to be okay. He's going to take care of me. I may not know everything. I may not want everything that comes, but he can bring me peace. And again, it's pretty unsettling when we're thinking about going into all the world. Like, "Ah, i got the Holy Spirit and so do you. And, and, you know, Brother is so nonchalant. What's the worst thing that happened? You die? Well, I mean, well, I mean there is that. <laughs> For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. There's no equation where God's people end up losing, right? No matter what happens to us, there's no equation where God's people end up with the short end of the stick, like, oh, I didn't want this. You may not want it in the moment, but, again, the gift of the Holy Spirit is a gift of peace. So listen, this conversation that Christ is having, you can look down in your text. It doesn't end here. Yes, there's a chapter break, but in chapter number 15, uh, you'll find some of the most famous statements Christ makes. Hey, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know, abide in me and I in you. You know, the outside of me, you can do nothing. Uh, in the same chapter, he says, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. Uh, in the same passage, Jesus teaches them that the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. But we're in the same room. The same conversation is happening. Disregard the chapter breaks. Let's pick up in verse 26. In verse 26, it says, When the Comforter is come, so he's back on this topic. When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye shall also bear witness because ye have been with me from the beginning. Now, I love verse 27 because the disciples would have had no concept of how powerful that statement is. He says, you're going to be witnesses of me because you were with me from the beginning of this. They have no concept. They're going to go and turn the entire world upside down. But Jesus knows because he's going to send them this comforter. And this comforter is going to testify of Jesus to the believer. So fifth function of the Holy Spirit. You can write it in the side of your Bible. The Holy Spirit testifies of Christ. He speaks of Christ. You know, it's a curious fact when you consider kind of this this Pentecostal word of faith, charismatic movement that majors on the Holy Spirit. And if you know anything about them, that's what they do. Um, But did you know that the Holy Spirit doesn't even major on the Holy Spirit? Think about that. You got whole entire movements based off of the Holy Spirit, but the function of the Holy Spirit isn't to major on the Holy Spirit. It's to point to Christ. It's to testify of the things of Christ. It's to point all men to Christ. It isn't even about him. Uh, The the words of Christ are clear. The working of the Holy Spirit is to testify of him and his works. These false teachers, what they'll do is they'll say, well, the Old Testament is about the Father. The New Testament is about Jesus. The church age, about the Holy Spirit. And like, while that like fits neat into, you know, some kind of uh, uh, doctrinal statement, uh, it's kind of hard to take over when the primary function of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus. Jesus pointed to his father in the same exact setting. And so the the Holy Spirit is to point and to testify of Christ. Now we're going to end up in chapter number 16. Chapter 16 opens with Christ explaining why he's he's telling them all this in the first place. In fact, look at verse number one. He says, these things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. He doesn't want them falling away. He does Not not that you know they'll be irritated that someone took their parking spot. He, he says, I don't want you to fall away. I don't want you to stumble to the point that you get out of ministry. And Christ continues. He says, listen, they're gonna arrest you someday. The time is gonna come where they even kill you and think they're doing the work of God. And uh, he says, listen, in verse number five and six, he says, I know my departure fills your heart with sorrow, but let's pick up in verse number seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you. That I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, I had never noticed prior to this study how much the conversation in the upper room truly is and was about the Holy Spirit. Yes, he's jumping on this topic, and yes, he's talking about this, but he keeps coming back to the working of the Holy Spirit because he knows I can't, I'm not going to be here to guide you in every step, but I'm sending you someone who will. And so the sixth function of the Holy Ghost is that he is perfectly present. In all of the lives of the believers, He is omnipresent, and this is why Christ would say it's expedient, which means better for you that I go away, because when I leave, I'm sending you someone who will be with you, Peter, when you go to Rome, and I'm sending someone who will be with you, uh, James, as you are killed by Herod, and at the same time, I'm with James, I'm with Peter, and at the same time, as I'm with Peter, I'm with Thaddeus, and I'm with, and I'm with Matthew. This Holy Spirit was going to be present in the lives of every single believer, um, and. and that's that is a, a beautiful reality that you and I can take present, or take, take uh, courage with. We are baptized into one spirit. We are fully submerged into the Holy Spirit. He is totally, we have everything of him we are ever going to get. We have the fullness of the Holy Spirit on us uh, at baptism, or forgive me, at salvation. Let's look at verse number eight. It says, and when he has come, he will, we're going to find three things he's going to do here too. He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment. In verse number nine, he's actually going to add some clarity to the first one. Number seven in our list, the function of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believers, is that he's going to reprove the world of sin. And this is really the function in the world. Look at verse number nine. Of sin, because they believe not on me. So this is unique. We think oftentimes the Holy Spirit just has a function to save people. Now the Holy Spirit does have a function to save people, but here in verse 8, 9, 10, and 11, we're going to find he has a function in lost people as well. And one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to reprove the world of the sin that they do. This, I think, is one of the primary reasons that the the world doesn't exactly like Christians sometimes, because his presence is in us. We possess that presence that reproves this world of sin. And we know from the Bible, Paul says that the law of God is written in their hearts, that they are a law unto themselves, that they know what they're doing is wrong, that they feel that shame and that guilt to a measurable degree, Now I understand they can have their hearts hardened and their conscience seared with a hot iron and so forth. But functionally speaking, one of the responsibilities of the Holy Spirit is to reprove the world of the sin they do. But notice also number eight is found in verse number 10 of righteousness. He's going to reprove the world of righteousness because I go to my father and ye see me no more. Listen, the Holy Spirit is accusing and reproving this world of their departure from right living righteousness. Uh, Listen, as much as our society tries to pretend like they have no concept of truth, right? That, you know, gender is made up and kids get to pick what they want. It doesn't matter who you love. All love is the same. The Bible is antiquated. We shouldn't be doing it. As much as they beat those drums, man, by and large, still knows there is an objective truth they know what is right and what is wrong. They pretend like, well, there's not going to be a gender toy section anymore, you know, because there's totally a social... of. No, they know, and the vast majority of men know, there is a standard of right and wrong. In fact, I, don't don't judge me for this. Somehow I came across an article in my news feed, and it was about men wearing women's clothing. Now, I, I don't know why they curated that for me. <laughs> don't Don't read into that too far. But it said this. It said, even though there have been great strides made by pop culture for men wearing women's clothing... Here's what it said. Most men still will not wear women's clothing. And I was like, yeah. That picture is some sodomite wearing a dress. And it was like, we have made great strides, but there's still more work to be done. You know why there's still more work to be done? Because the Holy Spirit is reproving the world of righteousness. That even lost men know, I don't think so. Number nine, look at verse 11. He will reprove the world of judgment. It says, of judgment, because the prince of the world is judged. This is a beautiful reality, and this is why soul winning works. Because right now in the heart of wicked man, men and women, the Holy Spirit is reminding them that there will be a judgment day. They may not understand all of that, They may not understand they're going to stand before Jesus Christ himself. They may think, they may have painted him by a different name. They may have, but the fact of the matter is all mankind in their wickedness, the Holy Spirit is reproving them, letting them know there is coming a day of judgment. And it's a beautiful thing in 2 Thessalonians, the Holy Spirit is described as him that now letteth. The Holy Spirit is restraining, but eventually he's going to be taken away. And that whole world is going to be able to do what they want. But right now, the Holy Spirit is reproving them of judgment. Let's keep reading. We only got two more left to grab. Verse 12. He says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Notice the patience of Jesus. He's like, i got a lot to teach you, but you guys can't handle all this truth. Verse 13. How be it? When he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. So the 10th thing, and we only have 11. The 10th thing, the Holy Spirit will help us bear truths that we cannot yet presently bear. I'm not talking about extra revelation. I'm talking about, hey, when you first got saved, like you could only handle so much, right? You couldn't eat meat, but you could try to drink milk. And even that, some of the milk was like, oh, I'm kind of struggling with some of these things. you know. I'm supposed to change this. I'm supposed to walk this way. And I'm supposed to live in this manner. And aren't you glad the Holy Spirit doesn't just shove the steak down our mouth, but he teaches us carefully and he explains things to us. And man, the person that I was, after five years of being saved was, was so much further than when I first got saved. But, man, I've been saved for 23 years now, and the Holy Spirit has been progressively growing me as a Christian in this path of discipleship and sanctification. He is teaching us. And there's some things maybe you can't bear just yet. The Holy Spirit's going to guide you. It doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that he's going to work on you in that area. Uh, and there are some things. I, I've used the illustration before. When I first got saved, I had only been saved for maybe a couple of months, and we did, we did a, a topic in history. I think it was the death penalty. And it was like, which side are you on? And I was like, God's against it. And I went to church. They taught on it. The next day I was on the other side. God is for it. And I just was growing. I was, I was learning. I, the Holy Spirit was, was teaching me certain things I hadn't quite understood. And I'm thankful the Holy Spirit is patient and intentional. And then the last one we'll just grab, because, it's there and I think it's relevant number 11 the Holy Spirit's job was to deliver the words of Christ to us and uh, we know that from 2nd Peter as well but look at verse 13 Howbeit, when he the spirit of truth is come he will guide you into all truth and we know that thy word is truth but we're not going to use that passage right now let's just keep reading for he will not speak of himself but whatsoever he shall hear that shall he speak and he will show you things to come he shall glorify me for he shall receive of mine and will show it unto you. Here's what he said. I've got more to teach you, but I haven't given it to you yet. But in order to get it to you, I'm going to give it to the Holy Spirit and he is going to speak it to you of things to come, of mysteries, of revelation, of truth. In fact, second Peter gives us clarity on that first second Peter chapter 1 verse 21. You can write it as a cross reference. It says, "For the prophecy came not in the old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved" By the Holy Ghost. Jesus spoke the words to, to, uh, uh, to, to man and gave them to us uh, at the writing of this book, or rather at the happenings of this book, I should say, uh, at the time that Christ is in the upper room, the words of God have not been penned. And yet Jesus says, I've got more for you, and it's gonna come, and it's gonna be all truth, and it's gonna, uh, he's gonna, the Holy Spirit's not gonna speak of his own things. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give him something, and then he's gonna give it to you, and he's gonna teach you. And I understand that can apply to